Section twenty nine of Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Section twenty nine. Thanks to the birds of the air and hired boys, by the next night everybody in Ruthiglen knew that Beatrice Lyle had gone, and tongues wagged delightedly on hill and valley. They wondered how Mark would take it, and how Aunt Anne would take it, and how Lewis Wilbur would take it. They remembered that they had always prophesied something of the sort. It served Mark Berry right, they thought. He hadn't treated Lois Wilbur very well, and they guessed she felt it pretty keen for all she carried such a high head. There was a look on her face that didn't used to be there. Thus the babble of gossip and comment ran on. Lois was left this time to learn the news from her mother. Aunt Nan would have liked to send for her and tell her, but something held her back, telling her that this would come with better grace from other lips than hers. It was Mrs. Wilbur who puffed and panted up the stairs to Lois's room, all agog with the excitement of the news she had brought home from a neighbourly call. Lois, what do you think? She said shrilly in the thin, high-pitched voice which consorted so oddly with her roly-poly person and broad, good-natured face. Mrs. Wilbur sat down on the bed, her hand at her side. Goodness, this is what it is to get old and fat. Pray that you never will, Lewis. To be sure, your father's people ain't trouble that way, and you take after them. There isn't a mite of Sanborn in you. You're the living image of your Aunt Della, and you've got to look more than ever like her this while back. Well, and what do you suppose has happened to now? Such a piece of work. That Lyle girl Mark Barry picked up in town has jilted him and gone goodness knows where. They had a terrible time of it up at the hill farm last night. So their Jerry told James Almond's Andrew, the girl went on like one possessed. Jerry, he was in the garden and saw and heard her before she went, and Aunt Nan was up all night talking to Mark and trying to pacify him. The girl has gone for good, Jerry told Andrew. He took her trunks to the station yesterday afternoon. Now, what do you think of that? Is it true? said Lewis in a low voice. True? Of course it's true. Jerry knows all about it. Won't Aunt Nan be tickled over this? She couldn't abide the whole business, though she did try to make the best of it for Mark's sake. She'll have a time with him now, though, I expect. He was crazy about that baggage. But he'll get over it in time. There's a chance for you yet, Lewis. Mother! The girl's tone was full of outraged protest. Mrs. Wilbur laughed comfortably. Oh, don't be so full of airs, Lois. I've got to speak what's in my mind, and you needn't put on so much dignity with your own mother. You never were like any of my other children. Lois did not reply. When her mother had waddled downstairs, she slipped from her chair and knelt by the window with her head bowed on the sill. Something bitter and glad and ashamed was stirring in her. After all, her mother's coarse assertion was only what her own heart was suddenly crying to her in a finer way. But she would not listen to it yet. 
She crushed her burning face in her hands and tried to stifle her newborn gladness by the remembrance of the pain and humiliation she had passed through. Were not its lessons branded deep enough that her heart should beat like this at the thought that Mark was free again? Aunt Nan came down a week later, and they met for the first time since Beatrice had gone. Mrs. Wilbur happened to be away, for which they were thankful, Aunt Nan especially so. The openly expressed curiosity and sympathy displayed by her acquaintances was getting on her nerves. She had been very crisp with some of them. They had said that Aunt Nan was not as easy-going as she used to be, though it isn't to be wondered at after Mark's tantrums. "'You've heard?' said Aunt Nan, not caring to pretend disguise of her object. "'Yes,' said Lewis. "'It must have been very hard for you, Aunt Nan.' "'Me? Oh, it don't matter about me. I've been worried some, I suppose, but I needn't try to deny, and to you of all folks, that it's a relief that she's gone. But of course, things like these leave scars, you know. It'll be some time before they wear away. I'll feel sore for a long time myself. As for Mark, well, I don't know what she said to him, but it must have been something terrible. He's a changed boy. Boy, he ain't a boy any more. He looks as grave and stern as a man of forty. Oh, he's suffering enough, and my heart aches to see him. But I can't help him any. Folks have to go through times like these on their own strength. It hurts me terrible to see the look on his face. But he won't speak or let me speak. And I guess silence is the best of medicine if it is sometimes hard to take. It is only natural that Mark should find this bitter said Lewis calmly. A love like his is not easily conquered. Yes, only there's one queer thing, Lewis. I don't believe he loves her now. I don't believe that if she was to come back and beg of him on her knees to take her back, that he would. Of course, you may ask why he feels so bad then. Well, I don't know. He acts broken-hearted, but it's more as if somebody or something were dead and lost to him, even in memory. I don't understand. It's all a puzzle to me. Perhaps it may be cleared up some day. Mark must drear his weird and drink his cup as others have done. I wish that we could spare him the bitterness, said Lewis suddenly. Aunt Nan looked at her keenly and what she saw filled her with satisfaction. But we can't, she said as she rose to go. And maybe it's just as well we can't. It'll be wholesome for him if it is bitter. This scar in his life will grow over in time like the furrows in the lane. Don't you remember that day, Lewis? Doesn't it seem like a long while ago? Yet it's only a few weeks. When are you coming up the hill to see me? Not yet, not yet, said Lewis hurriedly. She came close to Aunt Nan and put her arms about her neck with a kiss for the sweet old face. Aunt Nan held her to her heart and patted the glossy head. No, not yet, but some day, she whispered. So Mark in his turn had to taste the bitterness in life's cup. 
he drank it manfully enough, making no wry faces over it. After the night she had gone, Beatrice's name never crossed his lips. To him she was as one did, more as she herself had said. The girl he loved had never existed. He had bowed down before an idol of his own creation. He went about his work day after day with dogged determination. He had no heart in it. Beatrice had not only blotted out his future, she had robbed him of his past. He could look backwards only with regret and shame. There was nothing but the dull present in which he was a silent, solitary prisoner. Aunt Nan wisely kept her peace. Eager as she was to see the old relationship established between Mark and Lewis, she knew that it must come, if it ever came, in its own good time. She schooled herself to accept the slow passage of the healing days calmly. Autumn went by, and in its turn winter. But when spring came again to Ruth Glen, sprinkling violets along the lanes and coaxing the tremulous green out on the birches, Aunt Nan bestirred herself. It seemed to her that the desire of her life would never be given her unless she once more put forth her hand to take it. Her resolve not to make or meddle with Mark or Lewis was set aside by the conviction that if she did not help matters a little, they would never get on at all. Sometimes Lewis came to the hill farm now. She did not seek or shun Mark. When they met, which was rarely, for he avoided her, she was gracious and friendly to him, but she made not the faintest effort to renew the old comradeship. Aunt Nan, watching the little life drama with a keenness that lost nothing of every mood and tense, sighed with impatience. Would Mark's eyes never be opened? Or was it that he was willfully blind? One evening she went to meet him in the wood lane, when he came home from a day's ploughing in the back lands, driving his horses with one hand and holding a cluster of purple violets in the other. At sight of the little figure waiting for him among the ferns, his face softened into the smile that only Aunt Nan ever saw. Here, little mother, are some violets for you, the first of the spring. There is a spot in the back lands that is purple with them. Aunt Nan made a cup of her hands and drank the violet fragrance gratefully. Your father always brought me the first violets, Mark. You're so like him in some of your ways. She slipped her hand into his, and they followed the horses down the windings of the lane. Aunt Nan, glancing up sideways, noted the stern set lines of the lips that had curved so boyishly a year ago. She sighed, and Mark looked down. Tired, mother? he asked gently. No, Aunt Nan sniffed at her violets to gain courage. She did not know what might follow her premeditated stirring up of sleeping dogs. Lewis Wilbur was up this afternoon, she said. She is such a sweet girl. She just went home a few minutes ago. I wanted her to wait until you came, but she was in a hurry. Mark made no reply. He looked straight before him down the fern-fringed lane. Aunt Nan spoke sharply. Mark, I don't think you are treating Lewis right. You slight her and shun her and it hurts her. Why aren't you friendly with her as you used to be? 
Mark spoke with an effort that sent the blood darkly to his face. When a man has made a fool of himself in a woman's eyes, he doesn't greatly care to look in them to find her contempt of him, mother. Aunt Nan flashed out at him suddenly. Mark, aren't you ever going to get over that? That folly of yours? I believe you're fretting after that girl still. Mark looked at her flushed, reproachful face gently. No, mother, I'm not. I never fretted after her if it comes to that. I was deceived and made a fool of, and it cut to the quick. It is a hard thing for a man who has worshipped a woman as something finer than an angel to find that he has been duped. But after the first bitterness of that wore away, I seemed to myself like a man who has come to his senses from a madness, and I realised all that I had thrown away. I knew I had lost Lewis Wilbur forever. We may as well thresh this matter out now and never refer to it again. I thought I loved Lewis before Beatrice Lyle bewitched me. After Beatrice herself destroyed my ideal of her, I came to know that I still loved Lewis, and that not as I had before, but ten times more deeply. And I had lost her by my own folly. She might have cared for me once. She never will now. Do you think I can seek her friendship when it is her love I want? Oh, you blind bat! cried Aunt Nan, hardly knowing whether to laugh or cry. Mark, you never could see the length of your nose. Why, Lewis Wilbur loves you, loves you, I tell you, and always has. That is not what you told me once before, said Mark harshly. Well... I lied to you, answered his mother remorsefully. Oh, Mark, I suppose you'll never believe anything I say again. But that was the only lie I ever told you in all my life, and I told it for Lewis's sake. You can't see it from a woman's standpoint. Forgive me, Mark. It's the truth I'm telling you now. Lewis loved you, and it nearly broke her heart when you went crazy after that, that... After Beatrice. If this is true, it only makes matters worse. Can't you see that, mother? If she had never loved me, she might forgive me. She never can now. Oh, she can and will, exclaimed Aunt Nan, catching hold of his arm in her eagerness. Oh, Mark, you don't know Lewis. I do. She will forgive you if you let her see that you want to be forgiven. I heard her say once, one day last fall, when we were talking about a story, that she could forgive emotions juggled by fate. Those were her very words. She never says what she doesn't mean. But, added Aunt Nan, with her usual spice of practicality, I wouldn't leave it too long before I gave her the chance. She might find that harder to overlook than anything else. Mark made no reply and Aunt Nan kept silence. She had said her say and the only thing to do was to bide the result as best he might. To say too much might mar matters worse than too little. Anyhow, I've done my best, she reflected wearily. If he can't spunk up enough courage now to go back to Lewis when he's dying for her, I can't help him. 
He's dreadful like the first to mark, takes things terrible to heart and broods over them until they kind of poison everything. Half an hour later, Mark passed through the kitchen from his room. He walked with a lighter step, and Aunt Nan noticed that he was dressed in his best. She watched him from the window until she saw him take the valley road. Then she drew a long breath of thankfulness. Surely things will go right this time, she said. Mark turned into the fir lane when he came to it and strode along with a turmoil of emotion seething within him. He did not expect to overtake Lewis, for she had left the hill farm an hour before, so that when he came upon her suddenly at a curve in the lane, sitting on a boulder among the ferns, he lost his presence of mind utterly and could only stammer a confused greeting as she rose. She was dressed in white, with some of Aunt Nan's wine-red geraniums at her belt, and she wore over her shoulders a pale yellow scarf of some light silk that fell almost to the hem of her dress or wavered about her in the winds that came at intervals along the lane. She carried her hat, full of ferns and violets in her hand, and the soft masses of her bronzed hair framed in her face, as purely cut and perfect as a cameo. Mark looked at her and thought of Beatrice Lyle's baby face with a pang of self-contempt. "'You didn't expect to find me here,' she said smilingly. "'Well, I've loitered in a shamefully lazy way. This lane has always a charm for me. I love its shadows and its silences.' This evening is so perfect, too. It has made me forget how long I have been on my way. Mark fell into step by her side, and they went silently down the road. The balm of the firs rained on them through the cool green dusk above. Here and there the woods broke away to let in glimpses of saffron sky and rosy clouds. The tang of the trampled ferns smote upon the moist air, and they heard the gurgle of a spring that was born under the firs and fed the valley brook. Each thought of their many walks through the same wood. It was vocal with old memories. Mark cast vainly about in his mind for words. He could find nothing to say. Doubt and fear assailed him again. She could not care for him, if she had ever loved him, his behaviour must have killed her love. She must despise him, and how lovely and desirable she was in her magnificent womanhood. What a fool he had been to shut his eyes to this, and let his infatuation for a woman not worthy to breathe the same air with her lead him where it would. Lewis's heart was beating painfully under her calmness. She had waited very patiently, and if her heart's desire was now to be granted her, it would not have been spoiled by any unmaidenly grasping on her part. But she was ready to forgive him fully and freely. There was in her nature no small vanity which must be satisfied before it could pardon. When they came to the sagging little gate where the lane joined the main road, she turned to him as if she expected him to come no further. It had always been their parting spot in childhood. 
Mark opened the gate and held it. As she passed through, he put his hand on her arm. Lois, may I go the rest of the way with you? He said imploringly. It was too dark for him to see the glory that flashed over her face. If you wish to, she answered steadily. Mark knew that he was forgiven. He closed the gate, and hand in hand they went down the road to the valley together. Later on, they had much to say to each other. But now the silence was too beautiful and eloquent to be marred by so much as a word. End of section 29